familiar. The show that remembers that the water feature in the video for Against All Odds Take a Look at Me Now by Phil Collins was exactly the same one used in the BBC daytime quiz show Turnabout. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one has ever seemed to is political commentator Mark Thompson. Mark, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Well, I mean, as we're recording this, we're just sort of in the process of winding the lockdown down. So I've been on the radio a fair bit talking about politics to do with the lockdown, but that's died down a little bit more recently. I think I might have been a little bit too straight about what I thought about Dominic Cummings and the government's behaviour on the radio a few weeks ago. But um, you can find me on Twitter at Mark Reckons, and I'm sure I will be popping up on a local radio station near you soon. Okay, well, I'm actually wondering if you'd have preferred to be on the radio talking about the characters in your first choice, because to me, they're actually slightly less duplicitous and visually unpalatable bunch. Anyway, this is going to be interesting because I'm sure a lot of people remember where this came from, but don't remember this itself. They arrived in 50 motherships, offering their friendship and advanced technology to Earth. infiltrated their ranks and soon discovered some startling secrets. series, not V and not V the final battle, this was the ongoing series that started in 1984, which really didn't work. Mark, why have you picked this? I'm sure lots of people remember V, as in the original miniseries and the final battle. I think the reason I have such a sort of intimate relationship with this programme is because it was the first sort of adult drama program that I was ever allowed to watch, or certainly that I ever remember being allowed to watch. I know that the first episode was broadcast on Monday the 30th of July 1984, because that was my 10th birthday, and we were on holiday in Cornwall. And because it was my birthday, my mum and dad allowed me to stay up late to watch that first episode. It was on from 8 till 10. And because I'd seen the first episode, they let me watch the other four. I didn't realise that was two separate miniseries munged together. It's actually the first two episodes that were broadcast in the UK are from V the miniseries and then the final battle and that was another three sort of feature length episode and I'm sure lots of people remember that I mean the premise is these aliens come down they appear to want to be peaceful they look very much like us although their voices are a bit weird but as time goes on it becomes clear that actually they've got a hidden agenda and they're going to steal all our water and they're actually going to try and eat us all as well because they're secretly lizards in sort of skin masks I do wonder if David Icke was a big fan of this I was just thinking that yeah I'm sure lots of people remember that and there were various spin-offs I know that you discussed with Jenny Morrill about the V Annual I think the V Annual 1986 there was other stuff as well we had a book I think it was called V East Coast crisis and it was set in New York and I remember reading that but after the miniseries had been broadcast there were rumours going around that there was a weekly series like you know an hour long 
weekly series. But it just never seemed to be broadcast. I didn't know what was going on. And I kept looking at the TV Times. I was thinking, OK, surely they're going to put it on soon because this is a massive thing. We want to watch the series. And then eventually I spotted in the TV Times that Granada were broadcasting it. And I can't remember what time it was on, but it was something like half past midnight or something on a Friday night. It was very late. So it's far too late for me to be able to stay up because it was only like 11 or 12. I think it was either 85 or 86 this was broadcast. But we set the video to record it and we watched the episodes of it. And I have to say my critical faculties when I was preteen were not great. So I watched it. And I kept watching it. I think I knew it was a bit ropey. For a start, they didn't have the echoey voices anymore. So the budget had clearly been reduced. And it was clear they were using stock footage from the miniseries. But I sort of stuck with it. But I'm pretty sure Granada didn't broadcast all the episodes. Because I now know there were 19 episodes. And I don't remember watching 19 episodes of it. I think I watched about 10. As it happens, a few weeks ago, I spotted that uh, my new favourite television channel, which is Channel 181 on the uh, Sky Guy, Forces TV, broadcasts all sorts of stuff. They've got the Equaliser. They've got repeats of Sliders, that 1990s TV series that was broadcast on Sky. But what they did a few weeks ago is they broadcast all the episodes of V including the miniseries, the final battle, and every single episode of V the series. So I have recently watched the entire canon. So I'm fully up to date with how good the original series was because it still stands up pretty well even now. The sense of sort of foreboding and menace, certainly in the first couple of episodes in the original miniseries, is tangible. It's it's still a really effective piece of television, even though some of the effects are very 80s. If you just look past that, it, it is still very, very good. And the final battle, it starts to taper off a little bit. And certainly the final episode gets all a bit mystical where this crossbreed child seems to be magic and manages to save the day. That It all gets very strange towards the end, to be honest. But it, I think it still stands up pretty well. V the series does not stand up pretty well. The first few episodes of it are kind of OK. And you can see that they're trying to set up a new dynamic between Diana who is like the head lizard, the head baddie, and a chap called Nathan Bates, who's played by Lane Smith, who people might be more familiar with as Perry White from The New Adventures of Superman, because he was like a, the head of some scientific research company, and he set up Los Angeles as what's called a free city, where visitors and humans are allowed to move freely and they don't attack each other. And that remained the dynamic for the first few episodes, but it's just clear that they lost their way very rapidly. There are so many plot holes. It goes off on weird tangents, the show in the end, best way I can describe it is it, the middle to last third of the Viva series. It's like the 18 Crosswood Dynasty. There's all <laughs> this sort of weird posturing by Jane Badler, who plays Diana. And she's a very beautiful woman. She's probably in her like late 20s, early 30s when she played this character. But obviously, she's supposed to be a lizard with, you know, a skin mask on. And so when she's flirting with and trying to seduce humans, it just doesn't work. Because it's like you, a human being is never going to want to have sex with a lizard in a skin costume. It just didn't work as a dynamic. So when she comes onto these humans and they tell her where to go, it's not like that's a surprise and she's really shocked and like slaps them over across the face. That is like something you would get in Dynasty. It just, it didn't make any sense. I really have to just, a little shout out for the penultimate episode. The two main protagonists throughout the whole of V are Mike Donovan, played by Mark Singer, probably better known to people as the Beastmaster, and Faye Grant played Juliet Parrish. I mean, they just seem to move freely between being on Earth and being being up in the mothership, which is hovering above Los Angeles, at will almost. I mean, despite the fact that you would expect these aliens to have pretty good security, given that their technology is so much better than ours. One of the things that happens in the penultimate episode is they go up to the mothership and they get caught. And it looks like they're about to be killed by the lizards. And then they rip their masks off 
And underneath the Mike Donovan and Juliet Parrish masks, they're actually lizards. And then as soon as they let them go, which, first of all, why would they let them go? Surely they're going to investigate what the hell was going on with these lizards dressed up as Donovan and Parrish, but they do let them go. And then they rip the lizard masks off and it turns out they actually are Donovan and Juliet Parrish underneath the lizard masks that were underneath the other masks. And as soon as I saw that, I just, I couldn't stop laughing. First of all, it's just ridiculously implausible that that would even be physically possible. But even if it was, why would they have covered the lizard masks up with their own faces? Why why wouldn't they have just put two random faces that would mean that they wouldn't then be arrested? This is proper killed. Jeremy Beadle putting a false beard over his real beard stuff. I mean, yeah, it, it just it didn't make any sense at all. And I lost count of the number of massive plot holes. And just another little aside here. So I wasn't really aware of this, but I think it was either episode three, or episode four, but I think it was episode three. I think it's called Breakout. Some of the main protagonists get caught and they get put in this prison that is on Earth. And during the course of that episode, they managed to escape out of the prison but they meet this character called Kyle who's actually Kyle Bates who is Nathan Bates's son but they, they escape at the end Kyle then sort of joins them the next episode had a completely different way of Kyle being introduced they meet Kyle they've clearly never met him before and they introduce themselves to him and then at the end of the episode he joins them so the same thing happened twice and I had to look up to find out why this happened and it happened because when the production company produced that episode breakout NBC refused to broadcast it so they had to produce another episode so there's this weird episode that doesn't fit into the narrative and there's other stuff like that where there's a character who gets killed in an episode in about episode 9 Diana just shoots it and in episode 10 he's back again even though stuff that happens in episode 10 couldn't have happened without episode 9 having happened there's not even like you know you could say oh they've shown the episodes out of order the episodes were being shown in the correct order and I think that just demonstrated that they'd kind of pretty much given up I mean I think they realised what was kind of obvious to anyone with any critical faculties watching it that this was just a load of dross they were just riding it out just to get to the end of the season basically yeah well there's a couple of points I'll come back to in a minute about my experiences watching it but it's a very weird phenomenon this because there was a tradition of trying to launch TV series on the back of successful films and they never quite worked like the Planet of the Apes series like not many people know there was a Shaft series that didn't last very long with Richard Browntree where it's not bad but it just doesn't work on television there have been quite a few of them but this was trying to launch essentially a TV series on the back of a TV series I mean, you can say it had movie qualities, but it was a mini-series, and they tried to cash in on that. I don't know how they thought it was going to work, because the whole point of V originally was the impact. It was the sort of thing that everyone talked about in school the next day. You weren't sure how many people had actually seen it. I saw bits and pieces of the original run of the two mini-series, so I was really excited about the series coming on, and it didn't live up to what V was in my head, because that was the era when, in those days, if something was kind of the Boaten or even banned, you didn't get to see it. You had to work hard to hear Relax and Two Tribes. Not many people saw video nasties beyond the covers. V was a bit like that as well. It was on after your bedtime. And not many people really had videos then. And, you know, you couldn't really record it and get away with it. So there wasn't much you could do. So when it turned up, in inverted commas, in a legit slot, because it was originally on earlier. As far as I know, Granada did show all of them, but in that weird dribs and drabs way they did with imports they'd given up on. Mm. So I remember this was being very late in 1986. One of those occasions we were allowed to stay up late because it was my grandparents' golden 
golden wedding and it was held in our family home i remember somebody saying quick v's on and we had to work on subterfuge to watch this <laughs> random episode of feed the series on the black and white portable while you know people were still whatever celebrations you do for a golden wedding i can't even remember now because it's all overshadowed by v for me so it was a mass disappointment it was quite sad in a way luckily over time it's not been diluted by that but it kind of tainted the franchise at the time the other really weird thing was slightly though we're down the cast list is robert england as willie yeah. and this was almost exactly the same time as a nightmare on elm street well made his appearance on video over here but i remember people saying oh my god freddy krueger's the man in v and the two things did not seem to tie up at all it's almost as though he's an actor capable of playing more than one role yeah I, it is sad that was my abiding feeling as i worked my way through the episodes recently just sadness that a program that had such promise and such sort of what's the word i'm looking for kind of force like it was a really good analogy of nazi germany of totalitarian regimes now they did act in the original miniseries they did actually bash us over the heads with that a little bit and i think as an adult watching it now they didn't need to do that i think even as a kid i kind of knew a little bit because they have this jewish man who's like the grandfather of daniel bernstein who's one of the chaps who ends up joining the visitor youth which is clearly an analog for the hitler youth but he keeps drawing the explicit parallels between what's happening and what happened in nazi germany and that felt a bit unnecessary really because it's kind of obvious that that's what this is it's a parable it's an analogy and actually apparently kenneth johnson who wrote the original miniseries and was the sort of showrunner for it originally pitched to nbc a show based on it couldn't happen here which is a book about a totalitarian regime taking over in the united states but nbc decided that sci-fi was all the rage and this needed to be a science fiction program which is when he sort of repurposed his original idea but the way that the lizards gaslight everyone and the spin the political spin that they're putting on everything and, and how so many people are fooled by it it's brilliant and it is so tragic that they couldn't find a way either to continue it or just not bother you're going to come up with a sort of sequel series at least have a good idea and make it work don't just piss away you know all the goodwill and, and the energy from the original and just leave it just fizzling out into something that probably didn't even deserve to be broadcast at half past 12 on a Friday night on Granada frankly well that's kind of the ultimate analogy for me is it's a bit like you know there were things where I was a little too old for this by the time V came along but when you were a kid there were films there were programs or books that you felt could get you beyond their existence you know you'd see a trailer for the hammer house of horror and think i want to see that but i really really don't and then in bed at night you'd be thinking oh no what if the hammer house of horror is on in the house i'm tempted it might do something to me v was kind of in that mold but v the series was like oh please don't get me beyond your time slot i've had enough of you okay well you might have noticed there we have plenty to say about v the series but i really don't have much to say about your next choice because i don't know any anything about it at all couldn't find out anything about it at all no idea what to use as a clip so as usual here's a 60s pop record <laughs> Okay, that was a bit of dirty water 
by the Spandells from 1965, more familiar from the celebrated Nugget original artifacts from the first psychedelic era compilation. Mark, this has got nothing to do with what you've chosen here. Just explain it to me, please. This is a book. I was actually reluctant to choose this, to be honest, because I can't remember that much about it and I've never been able to find anything. And my guess was that even though you are very good at finding things online, my guess was you wouldn't be able to either. Well, you can I, tell me- I kind of didn't want to because I don't want my Amazon suggestion history messed <laughs> with like well, that. I mean, that, that's probably the biggest problem with it. It's the title. It was a book, a children's book that I read in the early 80s called Dirty Dick. Now, I'm sure they chose that title because it was a bit risque, but it wasn't anything to do with anything salacious at all. It was written from the perspective of a child who was being picked on by a boy called Dick the eponymous Dirty Dick, and he bullied him and he played tricks on him. The narrative of the storyline, as I would call it, was that the child had a friend, a girl was a friend with this boy, and they sort of hatched a plot to basically get revenge on Dick, and then towards the end of the book, they got their comeuppance. The reason I think it stuck in my mind was partly because of the name, partly because of the cover, because I have a sort of vivid memory of the cover of this sort of big lumbering boy with sort of mid-length dark hair sort of walking down a street. It was just, it was quite a striking cover. But the other reason why it stuck in my mind is because the ending was really very strange. I don't ever remember a children's book that I read ending in this way. And it ended with a sort of epilogue, a sort of coda from the perspective of the narrator of the book as an adult saying that he's now an adult. They've all grown up and he's now good friends with Dick. It just really stuck in my mind because it was quite profound, really. I mean, when you're a child, you don't really think about what you're going to be like as an adult. But what this did was it kind of brought home to me that all of this stuff that's going on with you as a child, like, will just be sort of long gone when you're 30, 40, and it's not going to matter very much. And the narrative of the book kind of made that clear. It just really struck me that there were very few books I read as a child that had a big sort of memorable either twist or ending that really stuck with me. The other one, which I didn't choose for this because I suspect lots of people remember Remember this? It's a book called The Turbulent Term of Tyke Tyler. So The Turbulent Term of Tyke Tyler, I mean, again, there's a bit of spoiler alert here. The Turbulent Term of Tyke Tyler is about, a, you know, a very sort of naughty boy who pulls all sorts of stunts in school and you know, causes all kinds of problems. And right near the end, Tyke is up the chapel of the church that's on the school grounds and he's about to do something. And then one of the teachers shouts up, Tyke, get down from there you very naughty girl and it becomes clear that tyke is actually a girl and when you when i was like 10 the fact that the protagonist of the book whose gender was never referred to throughout the book turned out to be a girl was a massive twit hang on is this like the smack my bitch up video is that what inspired that A slightly amusing aside about this is that we read that book in English. And when we got to the end, because, you know, you used to do that thing in English where you'd go through a book and, you know, you'd pass it around the class and people would read out loud and you would cover a book in like half a term or something. But whoever was narrating it at that point read it out and said, you know, you come down from there tight, you very naughty girl. And the whole class was like, oh, it's a girl. And then someone said, so it's a girl then, miss. And she looked at it and she said, oh, no, that must be a misprint. <laughs> So the massive twist in the book, our English teacher just dismissed as a mistake. But yeah, I can't find any trace of Dirty Dick at all. And for obvious reasons, if you Google it, you get all sorts of stuff that's nothing to do with the children's book. So I literally cannot find it. And I suspect I'll never be able to find it. Yeah, the one place I say I did try looking was Amazon. And I tried to couch it as carefully as I could. Still just page and page and page of people's self-published home-written porn, which it's all over my search history now. You got that. 
and Ben making that, quiz Tim. books in the middle of it. It's just impossible to track down. And yeah, I'm convinced that that must have been the title because you would remember that title. Oh, it was definitely the title. I mean, I know I've learned over the years that my memory isn't as infallible as I like to think it is. And sometimes I will think I remember something, but when I find out, it's a bit different to where I remember. But that was definitely the title. I remember because it was actually quite a shocking title and it really stuck in my mind. And and I, I knew even as a child that they'd chosen that title for the reason that it was shocking to me. The coda sounds weird, though, because it sounds, though, mm. was it actually a reasonably funny book? And then you've got this weird, is it a haunting coda? Or? I wouldn't say it was haunting, but it really kind of was very jarring. It kind of, sort of pulled you out of the world, the universe that had been set up for this book. You know, it, it followed a pretty standard pattern for children's books. There were a couple of goodies and a baddie, and the goodies eventually got revenge on the baddie. But then at the end, you find out that, you know, the good friends, and I am slightly making this up now, but there was something like he was godfather to Dick's children. There was some connection that they had as adults. There was something anyway. I didn't really know how to process it as a child. I think that's why it stuck with me. Well, it's not very often that I draw a complete blank with things that people pick for this, but quite often it's because there isn't any evidence out there or what little evidence out there is literally little evidence. You know, like there might be two lines on the Wikipedia pages. Think, this, you not only can't find, you don't want to look for to begin with. So unless anyone knows better, it might have to remain a mystery. One thing I'm much more familiar with, though, is your next choice, which I'm really glad somebody has finally chosen this because we've had a few kind of weird Channel 4 things from the 80s picked on here before now but never this and I love this and I believe we talked about it on the radio once but we'll tell everyone what it was in a second Just what do you do if you come home and find that there's two of you? Oh good God, it's me! me. Comedy in the Gifty on New Year's Day (sighs) Okay that was our old friends, if you listen to the show regularly. The Yes Of Course Christmas on Four Robots introducing a trailer for The Gifty from New Year's Day 1988. Mark, what was The Gifty? So The Gifty was a very, very strange programme. The best way I can describe it is it had all the tropes and trappings of a standard 1980s sitcom down to jaunty theme music, suburban setting, two couples living in two houses opposite each other, the husbands of whom ran a business together. And yet, as it progresses, it's nothing like a standard 1980s suburban sitcom. It's actually something very, very dark and moves into a kind of philosophical existential mode. I didn't watch this when it was first broadcast. It came to my attention, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or something, when it became easier to get hold of old television programs through websites and so forth. I managed to get hold of a copy of it and I watched it. And I have to say, I found it pretty freaky to watch, even as an adult, I would have been what, about 30 years old when I first watched this. I was pretty freaked out by it. For a start, as I said at the start, you get jaunty theme music, you get Richard O'Sullivan, everyone's favourite 70s and 80s ITV sitcom star. He turns up and his friend turns up as well, played by John Wells. O'Sullivan starts talking to his wife and starts discussing what he'd been doing in work that day. And it becomes clear that him and his friend run a business together and the business has recently been taken over by some multinational corporation and they've been sending them, you know, experimental equipment to play with. And they have provided them with uh, what he describes as a kind of three dimensional photocopier. So it can actually take kind of solid objects and reproduce them. And they tried testing it on some objects, but it didn't work or didn't seem to work. Then they tried it on Tiddles the cat and it didn't work either. So then they tested it on themselves, at which point his wife sort of kind of horrified and said, well, you could have been killed. And he said, no, there was no danger of that. Anyway, shortly afterwards, 
A doppelganger of Richard O'Sullivan's character turns up at the front door, and it's clear that the cloning process through this machine has actually worked. The way this sitcom then progresses initially is what you would expect. It's kind of hijinks. It's kind of like, you know, well, you're both sleeping in the spare room tonight, that sort of thing. And then the versions of the two husbands who turned up at the start of the episode go off to the pub together to try and work out what they're going to do about their doppelgangers. And their doppelgangers, who also think that they are the original copies themselves, then turn up at the same pub and they're sort of plotting against each other. Takes a bit of a dark turn when the originals then start to plan that they might have to kill the doppelgangers. But then they realise that there's an actual instability in the machine that they knew about and that any of the copies that have been made actually only last for three hours, 27 minutes, at which point they then just disappear. And so it becomes clear that all they have to do is wait and whichever ones are the copies are just probably going to just disappear and pop out of existence. And that's when this takes a very, very dark turn, because suddenly they're starting to question, are we the real us or are we the copies? We're not sure. And then they go home and they start playing bridge with their wives. And then John Wells's character becomes transparent and it becomes clear that they are actually the copies. And he disappears in a pop and obviously his wife's beside herself. And then Richard O'Sullivan is saying, well, I think I'm, I'm going to go now. And he actually goes mid-sentence without turning transparent. And it, it's just... Just absolutely shocking to me. I mean, maybe some people found this funny, but I just found it horrific because it's like a kind of, you know, are we real or are we not real? And then these, they disappear and then the originals then come home. But it becomes apparent then that they themselves are also copies because they also pop out of existence. And then another copy of the two husbands turn up at the front doorstep and they walk in and then they're talking. They're both very drunk because they're obviously copies that have come out of the machine later on. And then they're sort of apologising and saying, no, we, we, we sent a copy back home of each of us, you know, just for a lark. But then the wives insist, no, no, there were two copies and both copies have now disappeared and they're really confused as to what's gone on. They don't understand. And then they hear another copy each. Each of them outside the house about to come in. And I think, you know, having studied mathematics at degree level, you know, we did this proof by induction. I think you can probably say that there were going to be many, many, many copies of them. I don't know how many. It's a sort of M plus one scenario where, you know, this could go on for a very long time. It's such a bizarre programme to have been broadcast on New Year's Day in 1988 as a kind of, you know, light little introduction to the new year. I remember this really vividly. I wasn't that freaked out by it because to me, it was that was the sort of thing you got on Channel 4 around then. Mm. That kind of weird, not always one-offs, but certainly very short-run things where they were not what you were expecting and they tended to stick in people's minds. The things I sort of associate this with are there was that, do you remember that Polish drama The Sex Mission about the men who were sent to a future where it was dominated by women and I think they'd eradicated men completely. That seemed to be one that got into youngsters' heads. Maybe there were two young be watching it. There was Xerxes, the Swedish drama about the teenagers. I have to be careful I say this because it doesn't sound right now. Collecting underwear tags. It's like a contest. <laughs> there was, well, there was the other V that caused a lot of trouble in the 80s, which is the very hard hitting. I just think of this whenever I see anyone ranting about, you know, we'll get rid of them all now, Brexit is here and so on. It was Tony Harrison, the poet, did a very, very strong film inspired by he'd been to visit his parents 
grave and there was football graffiti on it and in the film imagining himself in a poem sort of locking horns with this racist skinhead football fan I think Norman Tebbit said it should be banned because it had swearing in it and like well you're kind of missing the point of it there but to me it's bundled in with things like Dick Spanner as well Channel 4 was where you went to not for reality TV and makeovers and so on it's where you went if you wanted to see something weird that was going to really mess with your head and I'm not surprised that was your reaction to the gifty because it sounds like it had the same effect as do you remember the Derek Jacobi series Mr. Pie yes where he was kind of a, an evangelist who went to Scottish Ireland he was obsessed with trying to fly that bothered me quite a bit not because it was yeah. frightening but because it just messed with reality in a really weird way I think with the gifty I think if it had had like a sort of foreboding theme music and it hadn't had Richard O'Sullivan <laughs> it had some anonymous actor I'd never seen before or I'd someone who I'd seen in science fiction stuff before and then it hadn't had all the sort of jaunty interstitial music between the scenes and the sort of the tropes the sort of fading in and fading out and the, the sort of you know the kind of scenes you would just see in the good life if it, if it hadn't been constructed like that and maybe if it had been filmed in 35 millimeter rather than kind of you know tv camera mode if it hadn't have had those tropes of sitcom i don't think i'd have found it very jarring at all i think i'd have just thought oh yeah but it's because a little bit like in the original series of survivors when peter bowles he's by far and away the most well-known actor in that series and he dies in the first episode and that's really sort of surprising you know it's almost like stunt casting they pick someone who was really well known and i think they did this deliberately with a gift they must have done they've picked Richard O'Sullivan because he's man about the house he's in Robin's Nest he's me and my girl you know everyone knows who he is and he pops up in this thing and that then you relax into it you think oh this is just going to be a little lark isn't it and it is at first and the fact that you know you've got these doppelgangers and they're sort of locking horns and there's an argument about slippers and there's an argument about who's going to be in the spare room and what the sleeping arrangements are going to be and it really just feels like a standard sitcom and you know you, you think oh that's where they're going with this and then they go in a completely different direction and I think that's why it threw me so much well that's similar to this was a BBC2 thing but from around the same time do you remember the black and blue lamp that was a really weird play where it started like a kind of Dixon and Doc Green type show I think it was actually used of some minor characters from Dixon and Doc Green or at least maybe from the blue lamp the original film essentially a policeman chases a robber I have to say that because that is exactly what he is and I still can't quite understand it but they kind of run out of the edge of their program and into a modern crime drama called The Filth which is very closely modelled on the bill so hang on a minute this sounds like a reverse life on Mars. Kind of, yes. It's more or less that, and they're appalled by the attitudes of 80s police. And you've got <laughs> this whimpering robber being beaten up for saying he doesn't know what a blag is. When people mess about with form like that, when they put it in exactly the pastiche style of what you're not expecting, it's that much more effective. But it's so hard to get right as well. But the gifty got it right, like you say. It definitely got it right, because it was a really kind of... You know, I rewatched that show last night for the first time since I first watched it about 15 years ago and it was still sending shivers up my spine even now so you know well done to I think it's Wally K. Daly who wrote it I yeah. think it was a story was originally called Time Slip I think yes it was a Radio 4 play in 1982 I was going to mention that because Wally K. Daly is a bit forgotten now but he wrote all these incredibly mind-bending and surreal radio dramas he wrote for Juliet Bravo as well so that's an interesting <laughs> contrast he also wrote the series Doctor Who that was never made when it was taken off the air in the mid-80s he wrote a story for that called The Ultimate Evil, which he later novelised. It was later made into an audio version by Big Finish. That's a lot more interesting.
interesting than people, you know, will give it credit for on face value, you know, because you just think, oh, it was unmade, it probably wasn't that good. Mm. So, yeah, things like the Gifty were well within his usual area of expertise. The other thing about it is, I'm interested to know what the current rights situation is, because it was a Channel 4 production, but made by TVS. Yeah, on YouTube it claims it was made by TSW, but someone else jumps in and corrects them and says it was TVS. It doesn't feel like TSW, it feels like TVS, actually. Well, the thing with TVS is that, I don't want to go into the whole thing, it has been mentioned here before, but the rights to their programmes are owned by Disney, but Disney don't know what the rights allocations are, so they can't release stuff because they don't know who to pay or who to get clearance from or whatever. It's all a big mess, but I don't know if the Gifty is covered by that, because it was technically a Channel 4 production. But it is quite sad that I don't think you really get the chance to be surprised by something like this on TV anymore, particularly when you're young, because things are just flagged up so far in advance. You're aware of programmes that you're never going to watch because they're so marketed to you. And the Gifty would not just slip out on New Year's Day now. I didn't watch it in its original context, but I can imagine just how effective that was. Given what you would expect to see on New Year's Day with a sitcom and the way the first half of the programme set up, I think it was perfectly executed. You know, hats off to them. Okay, well, moving on now to your next choice, which we've already talked about something that freaked you out a bit on television. This is something that freaked you out even more. In Dynasty at 810, wedding bells ring in London for Dex and Alexis. And at nine o'clock, Val Dunican returns for a new series of his music shows with guests Gloria Honeyford and David Copperfield. At ten o'clock, more show jumping from the Royal International Horse Show. Then at 11.10, Jack Lemmon stars in the war between men and women. Do you want me to help you home? The last thing I need is a seeing-eye woman. Hello? Entertainment for Saturday night on BBC One back now to Friday on BBC One and the start of a three-part thriller serial which dramatically shows what would happen if the deadly rabies were to arrive in this country. The Mad Death. Okay, that's a little bit of continuity leading into the first episode of The Mad Death, shown by the BBC in 1983. Mark, this sounds nice. Yes, so uh, <laughs> I, did, I did watch this, and actually thinking about it, I, I said earlier on that V was the first sort of adult programme that I watched in 1984, but actually, I watched this as well, and it was 83, you're right, so that was a little bit before V. Yeah, so this was a show about rabies taking hold in the UK. Now, when I was a kid, and I'm sure you remember this, there were all kinds of like adverts and public information films and stuff about rabies. Yeah. And we got talks about it in school, you know, be careful. And you know, it was like the country was terrified that them foreigns might get in here with the plague ridden animals and might cause us to get rabies for which there was no cure. I'm not sure how real a prospect rabies taking hold in this country ever particularly was. And it never really did happen. I mean, you do see the odd news story about, you know, someone that developed rabies, but it's very rare. But yeah, this programme was that rabies had taken hold in the country and the main character was played by Richard Heffer, who had a memorable turn actually in, uh, I mentioned Survivors earlier on, he was Jimmy Garland in a couple of episodes yeah. of Survivors. Yeah, it was. It just really stuck in my mind because, you know, as, as a child, as a sort of nine-year-old watching this, it was terrifying. There were dogs who had rabies. I, I remember, particularly remember a scene in a shopping centre where the shopping centre was largely deserted and they're in a big deserted car park and dogs are chasing after them and stuff. It was just pretty horrific. And I also remember that there was a woman who was one of these sort of archetypal mad old cats 
women, but it was actually, I think, all animals that she had. And she had all these cats and dogs and stuff. She ended up letting out a load of rabid dogs and they attacked her. And then they, they got out. And again, it was just, you know, it was just really scary because the, the way it was done, there was all sort of foreboding music and, you know, it was dark. And then you saw her face screaming and it really did stick in my mind. And I don't think it was ever repeated on the BBC. It probably has been repeated on like UK Gold, I would guess. But some of my friends at the time watched it. But, you know, talking about it subsequently, it's not one of those ones that generally gets remembered. You know, there are various ones that do get remembered, like the BBC adaptation of Day of the Triffids from 1981. You know, plenty of people remember that. And there, there are other ones from around that time people remember. But this one never, I never really see it talked about. No, which is interesting. I mean, it was repeated once. And this is why I tend to steer clear of this kind of strain of drama, because most of the mentions you can find about it online are trying to make some kind of conspiracy out of the lack of repeats. And like, <laughs> that's standard for an 80s drama. You know, it gets repeated once, a contractual thing. And by the time it would be repeated a couple of years later, TV's moved on. No one really wants to see it. I mean, you know, uh, famously, there was a columnist who I won't mention, who was going on about threads only having been repeated five times. That's phenomenal for a standalone drama. There's Dennis Potter plays that have never been repeated. That's by the by. But this is interesting because it was broadcast in 1983. Apparently, it was made in 1981 by BBC Scotland. So I don't know what was going on there, but they had a track record at that point for very controversial drama. I mean, the most famous one, which I've never seen in full I'd love to see this is are you aware of Scotch on the Rocks? No I don't think so. Where it was co-written by Douglas Hurd of all people and it was it was a near future thriller about a Scottish independence uprising. And there are rumours. I mean, there are wilder rumours that the tapes were seized by special branch after broadcast and so on. But apparently there is some kind of prevention of terrorism order preventing it from... I've seen a clip used in something once, but beyond that, apparently it's been... You know, it is one of those things that they're very, very, very careful about. But why was there the two-year delay with this? I don't understand. I mean, I even went to the extent of... Whereas I wouldn't look for Dirty Dick on Google, I did go and look... And see if there were any kind of like rabies scare stories in that two year gap. I couldn't find any, so I don't know what it is, but I have a problem with drama of this strain, and I have a feeling we're about to uh, have an exchange of words about this because. I think the shock value is what people remember, but they won't let go of that. When they see these things years later, they're not as good as dramas. As no, I don't want. think they are. And yet people try to make out that the best thing ever made because I think just they're trying to cling on to how they felt when they first saw them. And like, just appreciate it for the shock value, which this has plenty of. I agree with you. I, I rewatched The Mad Death probably 10 years ago. I haven't rewatched it recently. And it, it didn't stand up very well as a drama. You know, I, watching it as an adult, it, not as bad as the, the series, but it was a bit ropey. The effects are pretty bad. The dogs aren't scary. <laughs> They're actually quite <laughs> fluffy and, you know, look completely innocuous. But that isn't the point, is it? The point is when you're nine years old and you're watching something like this, it scares the bejesus out of you because you know, rabid dogs that might kill you. That's the thing that sticks in your mind and you remember. There's a slightly sort of more profound point underlying what you just said there. I mean, that applies to everything. Like, I think one of the reasons why the Star Wars prequels, even if the Star Wars prequels have been as good as, you know, episode four, episode five, episode six, the adults watching them 20 years after they'd watched the originals simply were never going to capture what they had when they watched the originals because they were children and they were completely absorbed with this world. And once you're an adult and 
you're watching stuff for the first time. It just doesn't hit you in the same way. It can't. There have been lots of programs that I remembered from when I was a kid that I've rewatched as an adult. It's kind of a thing that I tend to do. And it's rare that I watch them and think, yes, this still stands up well today. Most of them don't. Like I say, it's because people want to cling on to that impact because things that made the impact like that weren't designed to be, well, endlessly repeated, I suppose. But there's all kinds of things like you only have to look at people seem to think the Sex Pistols and Bill Grundy went on for about eight minutes of them constantly swearing. It's about 90 seconds, the whole thing. There's also, you know, the episode of Alexis Sales stuff where it started as an episode of Juliet Bravo with a fake yes. BBC Two continuity thing as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. When that was on, you know, my memory was that it seemed to go on forever and we were having hysterics because my mother actually thought Juliet Bravo was on and was saying to us, if you lot want to watch Thinky Sale, you'll have to go and watch in the other room because I'm watching Juliet Bravo. I think that, again, that's only very short. You get things like in, in In Session Tonight, the book about the John Peel sessions, there's a contribution from a listener. I think it's actually a friend of the show, Rob Chapman, but talking about they got out with their transistor radio when they were a teenager, listening to Pink Floyd session, and there was a kind of spacey instrumental bit that seemed to go on into infinity, and when they listened to it back years later, it's about 20 seconds. But, you know, kind of remember that, but see things for how they actually are as well. It's the only way to cope with these things. If you don't want your illusion shattered like that, don't revisit it, maybe, because I imagine you had some illusion shattered me watching The Mad Death. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remembered it as being this kind of, you know, amazing drama, and there was a pretty average drama. The acting wasn't great. There was some stunt casting in that, that as well. They had Ed Bishop, who's famous from kind of US sci-fi stuff. He's the first victim of the rabies. The whole way that that plays out is a bit... It isn't particularly well acted or well executed, for example. And there's also Richard Morant, who went on to become the second Captain Zepp. <laughs> Which we talked about the last time I was on. And also Brenda Bruce, who was Aunt Dahlia in Jeeves and Worcester, but also Tilda in Paradise Towers. The Now, some people are going to turn up and disgust when they say this, but the frankly quite grim Sylvester McCoy Doctor Who story from a couple of years later, set in a basically a tower block where the inhabitants have gone feral, and she's one mm. of the elderly people who've become cannibals. It's not a bad cast in this, but they're not suited to kind of shock drama on this scale, I don't think. Did you know it was based on a novel, by the way? I do. And I remember trying to work out that the name of the person who wrote the novel, I, I can't remember who it was now. Nigel Slater, whose other books are pretty much all about a lone retired SAS man fighting an entire terrorist organisation on his own. They're all, all things it. like Cobalt. It was Nigel Slater. And, and for, for you know a brief period, I was thinking, isn't he that food critic? <laughs> but I'm it assuming wasn't him. Different, no, different no. Nigel Slater. <laughs> you wouldn't eat anything prepared by somebody that obsessed with rabies would you <laughs> <laughs> but you are right it was a massive kind of panic stroke fear around that time because I remember those public information films and they were amongst the scariest ones there was the one with the sort of hand shadow puppets of animals that suddenly become mm. you know evil there was do you remember there was one where it had I assume it was mocked up but footage of somebody actually having sort of convulsions yes which used to be on during children's TV sometimes a bit on Saturday morning like... but I remember it in the ad break on something like Tis was. Yeah, well, they used to show public information films during the ad breaks on Tis was. I think they used to show them like on the BBC before Swap Shop and after Swap yep. Shop as well. Before Swap Shop, it's always the boy about to stand on the broken bottle on the beach. Oh, yeah. When did there start to be less kind of sensationalist panic about it? I don't remember it there being any turning point. No, and I mean, nowadays, I mean, 
you can move animals back and forth between the UK and the continent relatively straightforwardly. I mean, you need to have a pet passport, but it is now possible in a way it just didn't used to be possible at all. So you'd have to think the chances of rabies coming here must be higher than it was in the 70s and 80s. And yet you never hear it talked about now. I saw someone tweet the other day, actually. Um, just completely coincidentally, I think I worried about catching rabies in the 80s more than I needed to. And someone else chipped in and replies and said, yeah, I think I worried more about drowning in quicksand than I needed to in the <laughs> 1980s. It's like it's the same thing. Like you used to hear about quicksand and I'm not sure there was ever a public information film, but it was definitely something that, you know, people in fiction, the fate was that they drowned in quicksand and you just never hear about that. There was one about tightrope walking over trains. <laughs> still don't understand that i think the proportionate response to both rabies and quicksand in the current period is probably correct and i think it was an overreaction in the 70s and 80s what about the type of walking over trains let's not gloss over no, no, that should always be wary about that tim <laughs> okay well we're heading towards the latter half of the 80s now and something that i'm saying is a bit more jolly but the title itself isn't necessarily I have no recollection of this, but let's hear it and let's find out what it is afterwards. The Different Story, brackets, World of Lust and Crime, by one Peter Schilling. What a jolly soul he sounds. Mark, how did you discover this record? So I discovered it because it was played quite a lot on Radio City when I was probably about 15, 16. So it was late 80s, I think this was. And I really liked the song. In fact, my neighbour who lived opposite me, we used to sort of go and sit in his room and play in his Commodore 64 and listen to the radio. And we must have heard it a few times because we both were talking about, oh, that's a really good song. And then, you know, we'd be playing again a couple of days later and we'd be listening and it'd come on again. Oh, I think probably what was happening was there were one or two DJs on Radio City who like this song because it's kind of a euro pop sort of synth pop thing but it, it very much sounds of its time when you listen to it now but actually when you do listen to it now it, it's not a bad tune i mean a lot of sort of euro pop type songs don't play well nowadays i think this one does and the video to it is actually quite sort of big budget they're in this sort of stately home and you know there's lots of allusions to you know sort of supernatural and stuff it seems to work quite well as a, as a video and a song the reason why i wanted to choose this is because it taught me an important lesson like i say we heard it on the radio a fair bit and i became convinced that this song was not only very good but was going to be number one surely it had to be number one it'd been playing on the radio a lot it's a good song i was adamant to both my brothers that this song was going to be number one and so i listened to the chart the following week now this is where you might be able to help me out tim because i remember it being at number 26 
I definitely remember it being in the charts. I remember it being very, I remember being very disappointed that it was so lowly in the charts. It was definitely not top 10. It was something like 20 or 26, 27, something like that. But I've gone back through the chart history and I cannot find it. It didn't chart. So I'm wondering if what happened instead is that we were listening to the network chart because we were probably listening to Radio City. And it charted on the network chart because some local radio stations have been playing it. And the network chart, I believe numbers 40 down to 11 were compiled both of sales and of airplay. And I think the top 10 was aligned with the Gallup chart on Radio 1 so that the top 10s were always the same. But I cannot find any record of it ever having been in the network chart because I asked on Twitter and someone who seemed to know quite a lot about the network chart said there isn't really any record of it from that time because it just was never really was never any really any use for it so the only one that there's official records of was the radio one chart and it looks like it wasn't in that chart at all i would say that's possible also radio city used to run the european charts as well which you could have been listening to ah now that's possible maybe that's the explanation then in that case maybe i was listening to the wrong chart it didn't even get very high in that chart either then if that was the case but i think the lesson that i learned was that just because I like something and a couple of local radio DJs like something. That's not the same as it being actually popular. And I think that was an important lesson to learn that, you know, you can have these little niches and these little bubbles where people like stuff, but that doesn't necessarily translate to popularity in a broader sphere. I think it was useful to learn that at quite an early age. But looking at it now, I can kind of see why it wasn't a hit. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Because, you know, when you say European pop from the 80s, people think of modern talking, they think of Spaniard, they think of Sabrina. Mm. You know, they're records that you can't even really say they've not stood the test of time well. They did not stand up that well even at the time. Mm, Well, I think I was watching a video for Sabrina for reasons other than the song anyway let's put it that way well moving on from that (laughs) but there were kind of slightly classier records and what this reminded me of do you remember Voyage Voyage by Desireless yes I think so very similar to that which is more kind of serious like Philip Glass kind of arrangement the sort of thing Mm. you would have heard soundtracking some quite serious documentary from Europe that ended up on well Channel 4 I suppose and this was very much in that vein but as far as I can tell it came out over here late in 1989 the video which as you say was very high budget but it was like something you would see in 1983 yeah it doesn't suit that time at all and also we're just coming up towards the end of 1989 on the top of the box repeats on bbc4 a wild jive bastard bunny is all over the place you can see how quickly everything changed in a couple of months because i think people couldn't wait to leave the 80s behind them for a number of reasons And that's why, you know, first big hit of 1990, Guru Josh saying 1990s time for the Guru, which it was because he was famous for the whole of 1990 and then disappeared. But everything is pointing towards it's time for something new. The dance music changes, the rap changes, indie changes and starts to become mainstream. Even the straightforward pop music was changing, you know, having more kind of harder dance samples in and so on. And something like this would have sounded very out of place by then. Yeah, and I think you're right about the video. It's got very kind of new romantic overtones and it does belong in the early 80s. It, it feels like, you know, the sort of videos that you saw for the big new romantic songs of that era. So it probably was a bit out of time even then. I mean, when you look back to the year, you think, oh, well, this is 80s, but you forget that, like, you know, 1982 is very different to 1989, certainly late 1989, because by then the Stone Roses had released their album, hadn't they? And they'd already started popping up on television and things were changing very rapidly, as you say. And, you know, you had things like Soul to Soul happening as well. And it, it all just seemed 
seemed to be about it's time to move forward and I think he was a little bit rooted in the past because do you know what his real major success over here was it wasn't really a big hit as such but do you know he did a record in 1983 called Major Tom so I didn't know this until I looked it up a couple of weeks ago when I thought I'd better learn a bit more about this so I've got more to talk about than just I thought it was going to be number one and yet wasn't that some kind of reworking of the David Bowie song it was kind of a thematic carry on from Space Oddity and Ashes to Ashes about mm. it's not really kind of what happened next but going deeper into Major Tom's psyche no one's ever been quite sure what Bowie thought of it but I imagine they would have quite liked it actually the copyright implications are another question but it's <laughs> you know it's not just a cash in it's not just an answer record it's something expanding on two very famous songs and I quite like it and there was great excitement not so long ago when somebody turned up a lost checkers plays pop from a VHS recording that they put online that happened to have him performing that in it. Oh, wow. It's so weird that kids' programmes when we were kids, you know, that were like kids running around in studios throwing custard pies at each other, would suddenly, like, move to a song like that. It just... (laughs) That's just really weird that that ever happened, and yet that was just normal back in the day. Oh, absolutely. You know, you got things like... I've never forgotten the house martyrs turning up on the Wide Awake Club. It was quite early on, so I think they did Happy Hour... And then, I don't know whether they did it deliberately or they hadn't rehearsed anything else. They then did the people who grinned themselves to death. <laughs> a long time before it was on the second owl. I remember as, you know, how old was I? 12 or something, thinking, that's a little bit much, actually. <laughs> That's brilliant. It reminds me, I can't remember which Saturday morning television programme it was, but Public Image Limited turned up on, was it Get Fresh? I just remember, I I couldn't remember what song it was, but I knew it was John Lydon, and he stuck two fingers up at the camera, and I guess it must have been live because they couldn't edit it out, he just stuck two fingers up. (laughs) And I just remember finding that hilarious. And I tweeted that a few months ago and said, is this a false memory? But someone said, no, it really happened. Sent me the link and I had a look and yet there it was. Yeah, because it it did happen quite often because in those days, that was the only way you could sell your records. And you would get people like sometimes. I remember Lemmy turning up on children's programmes and he knew. I mean, you know, I know John Lydon stuck two fingers up, but Lemmy appeared to realise that he was dealing with children there. And he was, you know, he was kind of like as if he was on their side almost, you know, playing along with it. Whereas yeah. if you saw him on something else, he'd be truculent and darkly amusing and so on. But he yeah. seemed to get what was going on. Whereas you get people like, I know the famous clip is, again, I think it's the Wide Awake Club, but Depeche Mode doing Master and Servant. <laughs> and half of me, you know, being a big Depeche Mode fan, thinks, ah, <laughs> fantastic. And then half thinks, lads, chill out a bit. You, know, you don't have to upset kids for no reason. <laughs> Just to maintain your image. You could have not done it at all. Yeah. You are right. That sort of thing did happen all the time. It feels weird now when people sort of point and laugh at all that and say, what were they thinking? They were thinking they couldn't get any other bands. And at the same time, the bands were thinking, we've had no exposure on TV for six months. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's easy to forget that, you know, you're talking about an era when there were three and then after 82, four channels. There just weren't that many opportunities for bands to get on television. So, you know, the producer from Jagger's Plays Pop rings up your agent and says, can we get you on? You're going to say yes, aren't you? It's more a question of why did the producers think it was appropriate to be having these adult bands on? I mean, you know, Bay City Rolls and stuff, fair enough, but the House Martins doing the people who grin themselves to death. Even just looking at the title of the song, regardless of what the content actually is, surely you can look at that and think that's not appropriate. So do you remember seeing Peter Schilling perform this on anything? No. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't think I even knew who it was by 
because obviously we'd listened to it a few times. I'm not sure I knew that his name. And then we heard it in that rundown in the chart. And then when it didn't chart, I think it sort of went out of my mind. And it wasn't until about two or three years later. I was, yeah, it was 92. I know it must have been 1992 because I was working for this company in Widnes and we were driving somewhere and they came on the radio and I tried to listen. To, I said, I said, Oh, I love this song. Who's it by? And I was trying to listen at the end and then I sort of didn't quite hear it. And a colleague who was in the car actually heard, he said, Oh, it's Peter Schilling. And I said, Oh, right. Okay. So I wrote that down and sort of made a note of it. And it wasn't until the internet sort of came along that I was able to Google it and find it. It was one of the first songs that I downloaded when uh, Napster came out. (laughs) I just got visions now of like that being cited from Metallica trying to sue Napster. (laughs) Man downloaded Peter Schilling's song. Probably shouldn't have said anything actually. (laughs) I think Peter would probably be quite flattered to be honest with you. Okay, well, that's as good a moment as any to move on to your last choice, which there's absolutely nothing I can use as a clip to this, because I did find out what it was, but it turned out to be silent. So here's something on the similar theme from around the same time. Okay, no prizes for recognising that as the theme for Moonraker, the James Bond film where he goes in a space shuttle. Mark, why have I used this? Because my last choice is a handheld video game. So these were very popular in the certainly early 80s, probably late 70s as well, I would guess. I had this, would have been about 82, 83... I think my dad got it from some bloke in work. I don't ever remember going to a shop and buying it. And it was like an LCD game. And it was pretty basic from what I remember. It was probably a bit like kind of Space Invaders or it was that sort of game. I think you were either trying to launch things up or catch things coming down. What I do remember is it was really hard. But I, I just became obsessed with it. So if it was 82, 83, that was before I got my ZX Spectrum. I got my ZX Spectrum Christmas 83. So I think this predated that. So it was probably the first sort of computery thing I ever had. And I just played it incessantly. And it got to the point where I'm pretty sure I ended up getting the highest possible score. And I think the highest possible score was either 99 or 999. Whatever it was, it, it couldn't record a score any higher than that because it didn't have enough digits on the readout. And I think at that point, the game just stopped. And I definitely remember doing that at least once because it was a big milestone. I remember being really excited and telling my mom, I've, I've completed Space Shuttle. I don't know how this happened, but it ended up underneath the leg of a chair, then got sat on and it got completely crushed. You know, with those LCDs, as soon as they got a crack, they were just completely screwed, weren't they? You know, they just had little bits of sort of liquid crystal oozing around all over the place. It was unrecoverable. And because my dad had just got it from some mate at work, there was no way of getting a replacement for it. So that was it. It was gone. And I remember being really, really bitterly disappointed that I couldn't do it anymore. Although, frankly, it was probably a good thing because, you know, God knows how many hours I must have spent playing it when I could have been doing better things, really. Well, I did manage to find out what it is. Okay, see, I'm interested about this because I've never been able to a little bit like with the Dirty Dick thing, although for different reasons, Googling Space Shuttle just gets you so many false positives that I just gave up. But you were obviously more persistent than me. Yeah, it looks as though it was made by a company called Matsushima as part of their. Do you remember Nintendo did? the game and watch which is the very first nintendo things i saw where it's like it was similar to this but it'd be like donkey kong or whatever did you say matsushima so that rings a bell now you've said that name that rings a bell they did a knockoff to the game and watch nintendo thing it's called game and time so right, you know yeah. you know, the novelty with game and watch was you could play donkey kong and it told you the time the novelty yes. with game and time you'll never guess this 
was <laughs> you could play a game and it told you the time. But Space Shuttle was one of those. It seems to have been from around 1982 or 1983. Nobody's quite sure. Mm. And I hate to tell you, it does seem to fetch a packet second hand now. Really? Most of them ended up on the chair legs. Yeah, well, they seem to be very prone to chair leg crushing accidents. So, yeah. <laughs> it is odd how you did form those attachments to those not very good handheld games. It probably wasn't seemed... that good by modern standards. But, yeah, at the yeah, time. Yeah, they seemed so exciting happened. at the time. And the one I remember being addicted to, and I'd love to get hold of this again now, was Tandy Stack Challenge. Which is, you know, before Tetris was properly licensed, everyone tried doing their own knockoff Tetris, and Tandy did one where it had one extra square in each of the things. And it was a black and white handheld thing, and I loved it. I spent hours playing that. We just appreciated these things more, which makes me sound incredibly, horribly good old days. That's not what I mean at all, because, you know, I was going to say I'm glad to live in a world where we've got Super Mario Galaxy, but even that's quite old now. But you know what I mean? There's so much more to games now. I do, I do. the thrill of the new. You know, I I remember loving those by the tone grandstand TV games where it had tennis and soccer, yes, which is the same had with a number of paddles and so on. Yeah. Another one that we had, I think it was Activision Firefox. I loved that because that was a bit like a Space Invaders thing, but we just used to play that all the time as well. And it had really good sound effects on it as well. For the time, I mean, again, now that would be pretty ropey. So do you think anyone ever did use the time function on Game of Time? Because surely you would have had a watch long before you were bought a video game for Christmas. I mean, I'm going to hazard a guess that the reason why they had that and things like that is so that when the kid is mithering the mum and dad at the checkout <laughs> toy that must have been the reason because it's such an incongruous thing to have otherwise so anyway people will claim the spectrum of the commodore 64 could help you with your homework <laughs> they didn't they never did in fact if you ever tried to do anything on them it was more of a hindrance really i was going to say i mean unless your homework was having to clear up all the rubbish from a mansion in order for your housekeeper to let you go to bed then i don't think is that expectation was going to help you with your homework. But just before we finish, Mark, there's something else that you were given from around that time you're not being able to identify. I'm not sure if you've actually given it, but just fill me in and we'll see if we can work out anything about it. This was, I'm sure it was more than one. I think it might have been two or three videos of a sort of cartoon adaptation of the King Arthur legend. Uh, we got them from Dave's video van. I might have mentioned <laughs> Dave's video van before. I don't know how many places had these sort of mobile video libraries that would go around and you could borrow videos and then take them back the next day. This one sort of moved around various places in Runcorn and had sort of, you know, different times it would be in different places. But I never saw it anywhere else. I never saw it in any other video shops or anything. Goodness knows how Dave got hold of this. But I remember them being really good. And I remember like we would watch one and it'd be like, oh, we'll take this one back to Dave's video and we'll get the next one. And he had a few of them, like I say. I think we might have worked our way through all of them. I've never been able to find it, but that's probably because there were just so many adaptations of King Arthur that, you know, this was probably just one that was never really successful. And, you know, Dave just probably ran randomly ended up with the videos probably because no one else wanted them but I can remember the theme tune to it or at least the start of the theme tune I'll maybe do a little bit of a singing of that in a minute just in case anyone you know it sort of rings any bells with anyone I don't really have any more information that other than I think that during the theme tune I think he was sort of riding a horse up a hill or down a hill or a big sweeping vista something like that I remember it being quite you know quite broad in its sort of panoramic animation does that ring any bells with you? Not so far apart from did it look as though it might might possibly be an anime maybe so in which case maybe it was made uh you know sort of uh, japanese thing and then it had been dubbed over it's possible well it may have been king arthur and the knights of the round table then which i don't remember ever seeing
being, but I am aware of the existence of. Okay. Well, do you want me to sing the bit the theme tune anyway, just so? Sing the theme tune, and then maybe Google it. Don't Google for Dirty Dick, but see if it looks. (laughs) If it looks. So it went like this: King Arthur, King of all the kings and King of all the land. Do do. It was like sort of, I don't know what instrument that was. And then he just sort of went on in a similar thing. But yeah, I remember the, quite liking the, the theme music as well. But yeah, I just never came across it again. Day's video van, I think, just went out of business shortly after that. Never seen them again, never heard of them again. So if anyone does know what I'm talking about and can point me towards a YouTube or just anything to sort of jog my memory, if it does turn out to have been um, an anime version of it that was overdubbed, then, you know, that might be might be problem solved. But maybe I'll never find the dubbed version, you know, the version that was dubbed in, in, in English. Can I just point out that you singing that sounded incredibly like it would have done if Richard Herring was singing it? That's not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do my Scottish accent. <laughs> You're going to do some stone clearing next. Uh, I do live next to a big field with lots of stone, so I could do. I need to at the market, though. <laughs> well, as much as I love stone clearing, I think it's something that people have forgotten about while they're actually listening to it. Mark, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. The Lark's Ascending. A complete guide to comedy on BBC Radio 3, featuring Chris Morris, Peter Cook, Sue Townsend, Rowan Atkinson, Peter Tinniswood, NF Simpson, Armando Yanucci, the National Theatre of Brent, Ivor Cutler, Leonard Brossiter, John Sessions, Kenneth Williams, Joe Orton, Dave Renwick, Andrew Marshall, the BBC Radio Play Workshop, the King Singers, the Beatles and more. More details, timworthington.org.